Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of Impolite to Listen, where Shreeder and I invite you to listen in as we discuss all things classical music and beyond. We do tend to jump pretty quickly from subject to subject in this conversation, so we totally encourage you to check out the show notes where we've added links to everything we talk about. And now, without further ado, let's get to the show. Yeah, I think there are a couple of examples of pieces that have outsized reputations now because of the immediate audience reaction. One of them is Schoenberg's Piero Lunaire, and the other one is infamously Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not sure that either of those composers should be known for either of those pieces. Wow, so, Shooter, that's, that's a hot take right there. <laughs> yeah. Tune in next time for why Petrushka is better than the Rite of Spring. <laughs> They, they, ha- they have a premiere of a piece and one critic doesn't really like what they're doing and they start, you know, booing. And everyone in the audience knows that this critic is the tastemaker of the town and they start booing along with them. And, and now that composer doesn't want to compose anymore. This, this, is a, this is a fact of the concert hall. And it's this gladiatorial response that I don't think it does anyone any good. Interesting. Yeah, I mean... And it's funny when you kind of think of, you know, applause, admiration and concert halls, I, I don't know if it's me just being cynical, um, but I also can't help but think of the opposite, like concert halls, like La Scala, they're kind of like infamous for being, you know, for, for booing performers off the stage <laughs> and things. Exactly. Um, you said earlier, um, uh, you noticed Glenn Gould's repertoire choice, um, had changed after he kind of retired from concert hall performing. Can you maybe dive into that a bit more and like specifically what you noticed and maybe specifically what different musical decisions you hear him making? Sure. The, the, the thing that comes to mind is Glenn Gould's recording of the Beethoven symphonies. Ah, yeah. Five and yeah. six. I don't know that those could ever have worked in a concert hall because, um, there's certain there's I know with six at least he he does something where he sets up the microphone he sets up four or five different microphones and he has them he he changes the levels on them at various points and and that's something that that really brings out um the, the voicings in the symphony obviously it's very it's a very um it's a it's a piece that's when you when you reduce it down to a piano it's really easy to get muddled. And, you know, a lot of it is obviously that Gungold has enormous tactile control of the keyboard. But mm-hmm. another part of it is, is simply that he had, a, he had a microphone right on the piano. He had a microphone sort of picking up the general ambiance from the stage. He had one from the, from the back of the hall that he was recording in. And he would adjust the levels accordingly. And it, the result is this. You, you don't really hear it if you're just listening to it. But the result is an astonishingly balanced recording of Beethoven six. Beethoven yeah. Sixth Symphony done on piano. Yeah. And that's yeah. not really something that I envision being done in a concert hall. Um, and even if it were able to be done, I'm not sure that it's something that anyone is interested in hearing. This is somewhere where when you're bound to applause, you're, you're bound to a certain conservatism of choices. And if you want to make a, a weird repertoire choice here and there, it, it does still have to be kind of a sanctioned repertoire choice. And, and something like Beethoven 6 on piano, I just don't see it getting the kind of applause that it deserves. It's funny, right? You see that quite a bit um, uh, in, in programming choices, right? You'll see 
I think the Minnesota orchestra does this quite a bit. Well, they'll, I mean, for, you know, the first half of the concert, they'll program some really fascinating new experimental. I mean, maybe it's even not that out there. Maybe it's just Phil Glass or John Adams or, or something like that. But they're, you know, they know how the world works. And after intermission, they're playing Dvorak 9. <laughs> you know. Exactly. Um, and that's the shame. that It cheapens the whole experience for me. To paint the picture, right? You're talking about Glenn Gould playing the Franz Liszt transcriptions of yes. the Beethoven symphonies? Yeah. Though, um, if I'm not mistaken, he has made some heavy modifications to it. But it is okay. still, it's still enough that it's, it is the Liszt transcriptions. But yeah. I think, you know, being Glenn Gould, he fiddles with it a fair amount. Those are really remarkable, actually. Um, um, so, yeah, I think Gould only recorded, is it just five and six? I know I was looking just for Just five and six. I know I, I was looking for, I mean, I wish he lived longer and could have recorded all of them. Um, uh, yeah, I was looking for him playing the seventh and couldn't find it. I mean, there's other really good performances of folks playing, you know, those piano transcriptions for all the symphonies, but Glenn Gould was, you know, an artist of a certain caliber. <laughs> yeah, well, he did say that if, if uh, that he was going to retire from playing the piano and focus on conducting at age 50, and tragically, he did. He died at age 50. So if he did live, live longer, you know, maybe he actually just would have recorded the rest of the symphonies with an orchestra rather than on the piano. So we may not have gotten what we wanted anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, in a different universe, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Uh, I would argue that the Beethoven symphonies work just as good, if not better, on piano than in the orchestra. Um, Completely agree. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny. Okay. It's not a controversial stance in the slightest that Beethoven, you know, was not a great orchestrator and that's kind of besides the point, right? You know, it's, you don't listen to his music for his lush orchestration that you'll find in Korsakov or Tchaikovsky or something. And, you know, what's really fascinating about, about Beethoven's music is really the notes themselves, right? The actual counterpoint, the actual, harmonies and melodies in, in the pure sense. And when you, when you um, listen to them performed on piano, you hear, you hear a lot of things that would normally be covered up in an orchestral performance, especially one performed in a concert hall where there's a certain artificial emotion kind of thrown on top of things um, that I, I don't know for sure, but I doubt Beethoven would be a fan of. And when you hear his symphonies performed on piano, you really hear very clearly the the harmonies, the the melodies, the counterpoint, the theory, so so to speak. Because you know, there's no things being hidden or covered up by you know the flutes playing that passage and the second violins coming in here. The music is a lot more pure when played on piano. And when you're listening to music by Beethoven, um, that really kind of elevates it to a certain level as opposed to maybe if you did piano transcriptions of other composers' works. And to even go even further, it's funny when you listen to his, uh, his symphonies transcribed for piano, if for some reason you knew a lot about music, <laughs> but you didn't know any of the works of Beethoven, if you were to listen to all the Beethoven piano sonatas, all 32 of them, but intermixed in that, sprinkled the uh, Beethoven symphonies just performed on piano and not by an orchestra, you'd have a very hard time distinguishing which ones were which. Yeah, that would be, uh, it's a shame that his symphonies are as popular as they are because that would be a great experiment to run on 
someone who's vaguely familiar with Beethoven. Right, right. Because obviously if you, if you tested someone who didn't know anything about Beethoven, then they wouldn't be able to tell anyway. You shouldn't expect that of them. Um, I, I think it's, it's interesting what Glenn Gould says about Beethoven being closer to Bach than we are to World War II. Hmm. Um, that, that, always, that always strikes me as something that we, that, that we forget because Beethoven is seen as this proto-romantic composer and it's, it's always Beethoven, the man who is looking forward, not Beethoven, the man who is lo- looking backwards as well. To that end, I, I think, I think there, there are a lot of, most performances of Beethoven are not really X-ray-like at all. They're pretty, they're pretty romantic. They're, they're played pretty romantically. They're played pretty lushly, covering up a lot of the left hand, the quote, quote unquote left hand, whatever that may be in the, in the instrumentation of the piece. Beethoven was a pianist. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he composed so, all of his works at the piano, you know. Um, and I think it's tempting. You, you'll find, you'll find just to, to play devil's advocate, you'll find someone always bringing up a few examples of places in, in, Beethoven, in Beethoven symphonies where it's clear that he actually wanted specific instruments and um, he actually took care in orchestration. The most obvious example is going to be the cadenza, the bird cadenza, quote unquote, in, in the end of the second movement of Beethoven six. But, you know, one, one example of of a of an endemic orchestration does not an orchestrator make i mean so you know a broken clock is right twice a day <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and oh so i i i remember what i was going to say now um so this this approach to beethoven this x-ray approach to beethoven where you're really turning up the the dial on the left hand as it were that's not i'm not necessarily advocating that that's the only way that Beethoven should be played or it's the right way that Beethoven should be played or it's the way that he would have heard it or wanted it to be played, whatever. I don't care about any of those things. The fact is that that's a completely valid way to play Beethoven. And that's not, that's the the concert hall kind of diminishes that. It's a valid approach to Beethoven that does not really get much love. And if you played it, if you, if you if you started trying to play Beethoven that way, you may not get as much love as it's it's a risk, and it's a risk that a lot of people who are bound by the need to have you know thunderous applause at the end of a concert are not going to necessarily want to take. Yeah. If, if you if you it's we shouldn't be in this position where we where we have to trade off values. So you, you I can I can imagine the sort of thought process of okay if I if I, I I do want to play some contemporary and experimental music, I'll put that in the first half, but to balance it out and make the audience happy, I have to play Beethoven 7 in the second half. And if I play it in a weird way, and they walk away with that, then I'm risking this entire concert being a failure. So if I want to play some experimental music in the first half, I have to play Beethoven 7 in the second half, and it has to be the way that Beethoven 7 goes. They have to hear that Beethoven 7 that we've all heard a million times. And Yeah, yeah. it kind of becomes like, you know, yeah, you're putting a, a CD back in the CD player and you're pushing play again. And, you know, you expect it to sound the same way it did, which I always kind of wonder um, in, uh, you know, in the history of music and performing music, you know, I'm sure after the invention and the invention and the rise of recording technology, right? I mean, I'm sure performers started performing pieces, started performing pieces differently. And by that, I mean more consistently than you know in the 1800s 1700s where when this orchestra or this soloist was coming through town you were kind of expecting 
to hear a piece in a way you'd never heard it before. Right. But now with, you know, you know, I mean, it's just a symptom of, you know, the world we're in and, and the role technology plays in our lives that, yeah, we now have expectations where this is how a piece is supposed to go. And this is what I expect to hear when I pay for my ticket and sit down in my seat. Yeah. And that's really poisonous. It's, it's stifling. And I, I don't think it, I, I don't think it does much good for, for the state of music going forward. It, it was, it was well and good while, while, you know, 50 years ago, we're having the sort of recording revolution. Mm-hmm. Since then, we've been having the revolution of essentially quality control in concerts. Concerts have gotten a lot better. Pretty much anyone graduating from a major conservatory now is reliably, consistently at a very high professional standard. Going forward, it's not, it's not clear that, um, it's not clear that the music business will be able to sustain itself if we don't if we don't start trying to say look the next thing has to be that everyone has to have an opinion on this piece and you actually have to add to the you can't just make it again at a high level you actually have to add to the conversation about how this piece might go mm-hmm. and right. barring that just don't play it now it's been played enough times there, there are now more than enough good recordings of most of the standard repertoire we simply don't need yours anymore <laughs> and if 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 we don't if we don't start getting that message across i think the music industry will fade into irrelevancy it, it might already be doing that um you know, it's it's just it's it's such a shame when i hear uh, you know the the new winner of the of some major international competition and they're wonderful musicians they can obviously play the hell out of their instrument and they get their first cd deal their recording contract or whatever and what are they playing it's Mozart concerto, Beethoven sonata, Brahms concerto, you know, it's yeah. not a list fantasy, Chopin nocturnes, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and it's nothing different. It's just, it's just here. I can play, hire me. Yeah. Is there a soloist performer or ensemble out there that you think kind of, you know, goes against this trend and brings out kind of new innovative for lack of a better word, recordings well the one that i'm currently obsessed with is the the netherlands bach society sure their, yeah you know, they're in the middle of their all of bach project and and particularly their violinist shinsuke sato i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly he's incredible um, just, yeah just wonderful and they have the very refreshing quality of you know every maybe every third time they put out a recording it's absolutely infuriating to me and that's what i want I, I swing back and forth between, you know, this is, this is a recording that I'm obsessed with and I want to listen to all the time to how on earth could they possibly think this is how it goes. And we need more performers who, who get skin in the game in that way. It's too, too much middle of the road playing right now. I, I, want, I, want, I want a high risk, high reward. Um, and I want, I want to see evidence that you're actually, you're actually you know, going to the margins of what it means to, to be a reasonable musician. The ones that come to my mind as ones that are incredible right now are Shinsuke Sato's solo violin, partitas, and sonatas. Okay. The, these are, these are, he plays them in a way that I've never heard. A lot of it seems to be improvisatory in the, you know, in, in the way that it really ought to be. And, and they're just, they're wonderful recordings. Um, they're Brandenburg concertos I really like. Okay. Yeah, they Especially haven't recorded 
or I don't think so. I don't think they've recorded the second one yet, which I'm they have not eerily waiting for for obvious trumpet related reasons. Yeah, um, I'm also just curious to see who they pick as the as the trumpet player. Um, um, especially you since be they, on the record is having any guesses. I mean, Gabriele Cassone is the obvious one, but that might actually be too obvious. Um, uh, yeah, I've maybe Alison Balsam. She's been really kind of getting into a lot of natural trumpet things. And so, yeah, I mean, they record on period instruments. So that, that really kind of limits the field like um, of trumpet players that have recorded on the natural trumpet, you know, without any valves the way the the instrument the Brandenburgs were, or the Brandenburgs instrument, the Brandenburg <laughs> second concerto was written for. Uh, so yeah, there's not a ton of trumpet players that have dared record on it just because it's such a hard instrument to play. And again, especially by today's standards where it's so hard to play in tune. And of course, when it was performed and premiered that piece, I doubt it was played in tune, but <laughs> you know. But no again, um, the modern expectation, right? And, uh, if, if, you, if, if you want the applause, if you want the applause, you better hit your, you know, your fifth centimeter. <laughs> so I'm eagerly waiting for that recording. But um, yeah, sorry, you were saying um, yeah, no, you you really liked the Brandenburg, like the yeah, three like and the four fifth one for okay. I was gonna ask about yeah. the fifth. You being a flute player, uh, it's it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Um, one of the recordings that infuriates me is um is actually a recording of Shinsuke Sato playing the E major violin sonata. Um, I can't remember the BWV number off the top of my head, but um, I remember hearing that recording eagerly um, because I, I loved everything else that he did. And there were certain things that he did in that, in that performance that um, were completely um, making me irritated. And I was loving every second of it because he was taking a stance on this piece. And it, that's so refreshing. Yeah, I, I would much rather be irritated by something that you're doing rather than be complacent about it. What specifically irritated you about it? There was a level of affectation in it. I don't know why it, I don't know why it annoyed me in that particular recording rather than in his, in his more solo stuff or the, um, the concerto, the Brandenburg concerto, but there, there was a level of affectation and inflection on, you know, every other beat that if in that, in that particular piece got a little bit tiresome. Okay. Um, Maybe, I don't know, maybe because that's, that particular sonata is more gallant and it could, it could benefit from being played in a more, as if it were written by one of his sons, perhaps. <laughs> I see. Um, <laughs> and not, not you know, it's a, it's a piece that's more in the spirit of the son rather than the father. But Gotcha. Interesting. This is the um, Netherlands Bach Society, right? Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I just want to make it clear that I, I do, I still love that recording. Okay. Um, yeah. When I say, when I say it infuriates me, that's not, that's not a bad thing. Right. Right. Um, it's, yeah. It, it's a piece that gets me excited. It's a recording that gets me excited. And, and I, you know, that's more than most recordings can say. I actually listen to it from beginning to end and hmm. I'm interested in it and, I'm, and I want to talk about it. And, and I would want to talk to him about it. So it's not a, it's not a diss in any way. Yeah, no, I gotcha. So the Netherlands Bach Society, they are their their mission, their charter is to record the entire works of Bach, correct? The entire mm-hmm. oeuvre of Bach. And do they do they perform live? Are, are these recordings taken from live performances, or are these all? It seems like they are. Okay. 
It seems like a lot of them are. There's some that, that are not, but um, I can't, I, I think the, the, the good majority of them are, are live. Okay. Um, that's interesting then. Yeah. By the way, they're, um, all the performances and recordings are on YouTube for free. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say that. I mean, so that's, yeah, yeah. that's really awesome. Um, do go check them out. Um, yeah, they're really well like filmed and like, I mean, they, the, the production value there is, is not unnoticed. <laughs> yeah. And a, a, again, you know, I, I love it so much. It has really probably since when I first listened to Glenn Gould playing Bach outside of that, listening to the, the Netherlands Bach society playing, um, you know, in this all of Bach project has probably influenced the way that I play Bach the most outside of that. So they, they really are wonderful and, and they've been, since I've discovered them, they've been a huge influence on, on me. So yeah, I, I really, um, pre- I really appreciate them and I really appreciate them putting it all out there for free. What's the name of that guy again? The Japanese concert master? Shunsuke Sato. Yeah. S H U N S K E. And his last name is S A T O. And again, I hope I'm not butchering the pronunciation on that. It's funny, like in, in the comments for some of those videos, a lot of people are saying like, wow, this is, he's the best violinist you've never heard of. Um, mm-hmm. There's some recordings of theirs um, where I think, and I've, I've heard other people think, and I see other people comment uh, that, I mean, they're p- playing on, I mean, he plays on a broke violin. They're playing period instruments and stuff, but the interpretations some people say are feel like very modern and like very unperiod like, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's, it's a, it's a testament to how you can really have it both ways when, when you're playing, when you're playing Baroque music, you can be, you can be true to the spirit of Baroque while sounding very modern, while being very modern. So sometimes you, you hear with Baroque performers, sort of ossification they're they're sort of obsessed with the 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 rules and the um not the rules like the guidelines and the the general baroque aesthetic and they and it seems like they're almost in their own cage their own sort of baroque cage with that can you can give can can you give an example real quick like what specifically would be a baroque aesthetic there's a a certain kind of baroque musician who is trapped by the sort of constant dynamic swell the inflection of the of the sighing figure that's so present mm-hmm. in baroque music um and the the inequality of the notes Be- between those two things it is a certain kind of baroque performer who sounds as if they're saying the same thing over and over again in a very inf- inflected affected way and it becomes very tiresome if very proper and correct. I, I don't even know. I'm not a Baroque specialist. I'm, I don't even actually know if that is the proper way to play it. In any case, when you hear these, when you hear the Olive Bach people playing it, there is a, there's a fire underneath their, their orchestra. You know, the, everyone is playing, everyone is playing like mad. They're improvising, um, you know, in very interesting ways that's true to the spirit of the Baroque, but it, you know, sometimes it sounds downright demented. I've never heard Baroque players improvising as much or as interestingly as, as these guys, and specifically like Shinsuke Sato, some of his, you know, the, the, the repeats in his violin sonatas get 
absolutely insane. And I love it. Um, I've, I've just simply never heard of it before. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I just don't hear enough violinists. So, you know, if, if, if you guys out there know of any other people who go crunk with repeat sections in their, in their Bach, let me know because, you know, I'm all here for it. I can hear that all day. So, um, yeah. Right. And I, I think that's, that's what, that's ultimately what, what ends up making them sound, you know, they're on the one hand being very Baroque and on the other hand, it sounds like they're a jazz orchestra sometimes. Hmm. Hmm. And, and I, I don't hear that. Com- I don't hear that combination with anyone else that come that, that I hear off the top of my head. There's some, there's some harp- harpsichordists. Um, is his name George Malcolm? Could be. Um, uh, I may not be aware actually. Certainly Keith Jarrett comes to mind. Oh. He's also, he's also very interesting, yeah. but as, as a group, as a large group of people, uh, I've never seen this sort of spirit across the board and I really, I really enjoy it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And they're all just, you know, a plus musicians too. <laughs> I mean, they're all yeah. Like the whole, the whole cast on stage is like all, you know, world-class players. And they're having fun. That's always, yeah. a, that's always fun to see. So but when we were talking earlier about like applause and things and like soulless, you know, kind of playing for the concert hall and playing for the crowd does any artist or performer or soloist come to mind that you think is on the opposite end of that spectrum? That's still kind of it, opposite end of the spectrum in the sense that, yeah, they're still a big world-renowned artist, perform, sell out, but they don't play, you know, list fantasies, just, just a wild crowd. <laughs> hmm. That's a good question. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Can you? I mean... One pianist that comes to mind is Andre Schiff, the Hungarian pianist, um, who yeah. is getting old and still just getting better every year. <laughs> I mean, he's just, he's, he's an incredible artist. Um, and I mean, one of the world-class interpreters, interpreters of Bach and, and beyond. Um, and still um, gives these amazing marathon concerts where yeah. he plays through the, he plays through all of Bach's English suites and then it's time for intermission before yeah. he plays to all of Bach's French suites. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, he, he did that in San Francisco last year, actually. Um, oh, really? He played awesome. all, all the Bach English suites. And then I forget what he, I think he played a bunch of Schumann or Schubert afterwards, after intermission. But yeah, I mean, the concert was long. I mean, and it, it, was, it was phenomenal. It was, it was great. I mean, such a great performance. But uh, yeah, longer than, you know, your typical orchestral concert. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I do frequently say you should listen to Andre Schiff's recordings of X, Y, or Z. I, I, I always, I'm always listening to him. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, maybe Joshua Bell has it all figured out. He can be the showman when he wants to be and when he needs to be. But at the same time, he puts out great recordings. You know, is that fair? Like it's yeah. yeah. You know, Joshua Bell. I think his recordings are some of his best work. He has a he has a CD with Jeremy Denk. Um, I think it's called French Impressions. Okay. Where he plays, he plays the Ravel Sonatine and the Franck Sonata and maybe one other thing. I don't remember. And that, that's a wonderful CD. Um, he has a recording of the Brahms trios with okay. Stephen Isserlis and Jeremy Denk. Interesting. Also wonderful. He is a wonderful artist. And I think that's actually a good example of applause and the cult of personality that's made in the concert hall. Um, yeah really really stifling one's artistry because he he's a wonderful musician and and he's a wonderful artist when he when he has the space to be that thing but 
this crazy life that we've come to accept as normal where you're playing 160 concerts in 365 days and yeah. you're always traveling and in a new place and jet lagged and you just have to play this thing right right that everyone's heard a million times oh actually uh, of course i should have thought of this but a, a great example I, I would i still listen to his cds but i think a great example of someone who makes the artist's presence in a room worthwhile someone who actually makes the act of performing worthwhile is yoya ma he's an unparalleled musician and he's as far as i can see an unparalleled human being Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I see some of the things that he does and, and he has a similar vibe to Yehudi Menuhin, who was beloved across the globe in a way that I've never seen for, for any other musician. Um, you know, you could go to, you could go to a house in, in India and at, at a certain time, you know, and they would have the, the things that they would have on the wall were, pictures of their Hindu gods and one of Yehudi Menuhin playing the violin in front of the Taj Mahal. He was, he was beloved. And, um, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what makes someone tap into that spirit, but there's a certain kind of person who, who can connect with anyone. Yeah. You, you, anyone from anywhere in any circumstance and, and play music in a way that's so touching and intimate as to touch anyone that he's playing for. And, I don't think that kind of thing can be taught or learned or trained. I think it's just the way that you carry yourself as a human being. And I think that is the kind of musician that's actually, you know, valuable. And that's actually the kind of musician that, that makes me think, okay, there's actually something to this thing that we call a concert that's <laughs> worth preserving. And it's not often that I see musicians like that. Like I said, Yoyama is the one who's the most active right now that springs immediately to mind. Leonard Bernstein was a good example of, of another kind of, human being extraordinaire right and and yehudi menuhin as well yeah what what i meant to bring up earlier with andre schiff is um what i what i loved about seeing him perform live is kind of like an ambivalence he had to the concert hall i mean i just get the feeling he plays no differently if he's playing on, on a big stage with you know a few thousand people in the audience or if he's playing to a friend of his in his living room. I mean, he just, it just, he just feels like he's playing for, for no one but his, but himself. <laughs> and I mean yeah. that as a true compliment. Yeah. It's, it's a very, um, I've, I've never seen him in concert and I really want to, because it seems like it would be a very, um, intimate experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, he seems to carry that spirit even even in like there, there's a there's a little masterclass clip on YouTube that, that has always cracked me up where he's talking about one of the variations in Beethoven's 32nd piano sonata <laughs> that is commonly known as the boogie woogie variation. And he, he, he just says with a completely you know, deadpan tone and a straight face. I do not I do not like boogie woogie. I don't think of this as the boogie woogie variation. <laughs> And everyone around him is just sort of cracking up and he's just sort of like, what, what did I say? <laughs> I, I made myself perfectly clear. I do not like Boogie Woogie. I, I think, uh, I think it was part of that same, same match class series he gave at the Royal Conservatory in London. Um, someone else was playing, you know, a movement from the 14th, you know, piano sonata by Beethoven. We can all guess which one, um, uh, that would be the, Moonlight Sonata, uh, you know, a, a name yeah. that Beethoven did not give that piece. It was 
it was given to that piece by a publisher years later to try to sell more copies of it. And boy, did it work. That's like one of the best selling piano sonatas of all time. So um, yeah. in, in his uh, Hungarian accent, yeah, Andrei Schiff to the student says, yes, as you know, there is nothing moonlight about this piece. <laughs> waveforms picking oh <sighs> all right so audio rolling film rolling no we don't <laughs> <laughs> um a podcast yeah we have a podcast wow. how do we come here yeah <laughs> the long and winding road <laughs>